0: you can drive right up to it and see people. they're They look like they're in a giant cage, essentially. Um, they're sleeping in the dirt. Um, you know, we would pass through tarps and tents and things for people to set up. But, you know, there's one porta potty for hundreds of people. It's really grim. It's really, really grim, especially when it rains. it's it's horrific. It's just a muddy pit because you've always taken such a charge. Oh
1: are you, you are listening
0: to the Border Chronicle.
1: Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast. I am Todd Miller and along with fellow journalist Melissa Dobolsky. You can find us at the borderchronicle.com every Tuesday and Thursday. Um and we wanted to wish you all a happy new year. Uh you know, happy 2024. And for that reason, we wanted to start out um, this year with this with our first podcast of the year with maybe some more broad questions and um, particularly looking at uh what, did we, what were we seeing on the border in 2023? What were some of the things that struck us? Um, and is there anything important to consider as we move into this new year, 2024, especially that it is an election year? And especially, historically speaking, the border generally becomes a political sacrificial lamb um, and during an election year. And so this is why I am elated to have back on the podcast Erica Pinheiro the executive director of Al Otro Lado and um, Al Otro Lado is an organization that provides legal and humanitarian assistance um, for people for border crossers refugees um, deportees uh, migrants uh, um, and, uh, and Erica um has some as some of the best analysis and insight and observations from her on, on from her the her on-the-ground perspective there right on the border that I've come across. So I'm really happy Erica, I'm really happy to have you on to, to peruse and contemplate all these questions as we transition from year to year. So welcome and happy new year to you.
0: Happy New Year Todd and thank you so much for that kind introduction. I will say the same about Your very insightful analysis of the border, so I'm really pleased to have this conversation today.
1: Thank you. Um, Yeah, so let's let's get started with. uh, I guess we'll get started with the past. (laughs) We'll go the linear time route, you know, past to present. Um, But um, start in 2020. I I wanted to ask you about 2023, and you know, some of the things that you saw that stood out to you. And and I, I would like to say, you know, big things that. Maybe some of the Border Chronicle listeners and readers, you know, probably are aware of, or and your additional insight to to that, but also like this, you know, some of the other things that haven't gotten the coverage or that you see on the ground that you think you think might be important for us to consider, or really anything that you want or you think is important to think about as we as we transition from year to
0: year. Wow. Just even thinking back over the past year, it feels like one of the longest years of my life on the border. <laughs> it's So much has happened. Um, not a lot of it good for people who are trying to seek protection in the United States. Two things that really um, come to the forefront of my mind when I think about the past year. Uh, first is really the apification of the asylum system in the United States. So It was the end of 2022, beginning of 2023, when the app CBP-1 really became the only way for individuals to access protection in the United States at ports of entry. Um, Of course, we were still at that time under Title 42. So there were many more restrictions on the ability to seek asylum in the United States, but there was a humanitarian exemption process. That before 2023 had been open to organizations like mine, faith-based groups, shelters, and others who were working in Mexico who could help identify the most vulnerable populations and, um, you know, petition the government to really allow them to to enter under under a humanitarian exemption. In 2023, um, individuals were forced to use the app themselves, and it really limited the breadth of individuals who were able to access protection. Um, the second thing that really... Hey,
1: can I ask you one question about yeah. this? What, yeah, of what,
0: course.
1: Yeah, what, why? Like, what's the process with the CBP-1 app that really, like, limits people or makes it... The, would you argue that it just makes the whole process much more difficult or or the the CBP-1 app you have... The application process, is there, I mean, I've heard that it's really glitchy as well. Um, Yeah. Like, what are some of the reasons for that? Or what's the process?
0: Well, the process is essentially that a person has to first speak one of the languages supported by the app. Initially, it was only available in English and Spanish. Um, Some garbled version of Haitian Creole was later added. That's really almost worse than Google Translate. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, incredible to me that they haven't hired a Haitian person to really improve uh, the Haitian Creole version of the app, but I digress. Who's
1: who's doing that? Is it like somebody who just like learned learned Creole and like...
0: It looks like Google Translate. No, it looks like they ran it through Google Translate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's so bad that there's not even, in many cases, spaces between the words. It's just like a run-on of letters that you have to try to decipher. But anyway, um, so the language is very limiting, right? We have an incredibly diverse population of asylum seekers at the border. Um, Just my organization last year saw people speaking, I think, over 30 languages. And that's a small fraction of the overall diversity of migrants trying to seek protection. So the language is very limiting. Um, You have to create a profile online. Um, You have to take a picture um, that is basically like a facial recognition type system where it has to map your face so that your face can later be matched when you present yourself at a port of entry. That was incredibly glitchy. It wasn't working as well with darker skin tones at first. Um, There were just myriad issues with the app. Um, It didn't work on older cell phones. It didn't work unless you had a really strong data connection, which you know, if you're living in a camp or a shelter in Northern Mexico, it was not really accessible to you. So, um, and all of that, you know, if you actually got through to where you could make an appointment, there just weren't enough appointments available. So people were waiting for a really long time. Initially, families were at a disadvantage because the appointments would go very quickly. And so if you're looking for a group of five appointments at once, for example, um, it would be much more difficult for you to get it. There was also the issue of the geolocation feature not working that well. So someone in Tijuana might get an appointment in Matamoros and they would have to Mm -hmm. travel across Mexico to get to their appointment, which was, of course, very dangerous. So there were just so many issues beyond the fact that really any system that you put in place that requires a pre-screen in Mexico will inevitably be taken over by organized crime or other individuals who seek to exploit the desperation of migrants who are trying to get to the United States. So almost right away, and this is something we saw throughout Title 42, we saw people paying for appointments, the system getting hacked so that, you know, individuals were able to buy appointments, Um, you know, certain nationalities were favored in that system. Um, people were able to jam the geolocation feature. So I know that some individuals were buying appointments when they were still in their home country not even in Mexico. So there's, I mean, I could go on and on and on about the issues with CBP one, but just really, you know, there are some benefits to an appointment system, I would say for very vulnerable individuals, but there's also the option to just line up outside the port of entry, which is consistent with the law of the United States. And yeah, so and
1: that's, that can't yeah. happen. That can't, like with the CBP one no. app, you're required to use that no. app and lining up cannot happen, right?
0: Right. And that was something that when we were still under Title 42 and the app was being used to process humanitarian exemptions, even the Department of Homeland Security said once Title 42 is over, people will be able to line up outside the port of entry. That never happened, at least not on the California border. I know in many other places, it's it's maybe happened to a limited extent, but by and large, people cannot line up outside the port of entry, and that's due to two factors. One is the customs and border protection officials will tell people to go away, and two, Mexican law enforcement, National Guard, immigration, et cetera, will also be stationed in the approach to the port of entry or right outside the port of entry. And will detain people who are turned away from the port of entry. And so they can either be extorted or deported or sent further South in Mexico, or just left to wait in Mexico for their CBP one appointment, which again can be very dangerous for refugees so, who are forced to wait in these cities.
1: So no one's ever going to do that. Right. For that reason alone. Like they're, if they're going to get arrested and possibly deported to another place. Um, and, uh, that like given all these issues that you've made up, me that you've that you've told that you've just um told us about, um what like has like is do you know is CBP recognizing any of this stuff? Is that are they saying they're going to improve the app? Are they contemplating getting rid of the app? Or is there any talk about the app at all from that end? Or is it just you guys are stuck with this app? Uh this is what you gotta do, and that's what you're gonna have to do from now on?
0: CBP claims it's a success, which Oh, is, really? <laughs> um, it's very strange. It's, it's like a, a new level of gaslighting to hear that when we're seeing people in real time struggle with the app in Mexico, um, but they really think it's been a success. They claim that it has reduced the time it takes to process an asylum seeker at the port of entry and that it enables them to process more asylum seekers um i don't know if that's true if they are actually processing to their capacity um we have litigated the issue of their actual capacity and it's very hard to pin down the agency on how they are actually defining what capacity is so it's you know could be operational capacity it could be the number of people they have processing it could be the detention space. We don't really know what that means. And so when there's no baseline, it's hard to judge the efficacy of the app. Um, We have also sued the government again, um, basically because their own policies require that um, they do not turn asylum seekers away who are approaching the port of entry in an attempt to seek asylum. Uh, We actually won Another lawsuit on that issue several years ago, Um, the issue is now on appeal before the Ninth Circuit, but we filed a new lawsuit specifically attacking the CDP1 policy, but we are in a very strange place in immigration litigation today because of a 2022 decision called Aleman Gonzalez, and basically what that does is it prevents district courts from issuing injunctive relief for a class-wide Um, group of people like you know just a class action that would address any violation of immigration law so what that means practically is that the government is able to violate the law without a court being able to step in on a Mm -hmm. class-wide basis and so when we filed for injunctive relief to basically force the government to allow individuals to line up at the port of entry rather than forcing them to go through the app the court found that we were not able to obtain an injunction based on that case law, based on Aliman Gonzalez. And so, and that was something that the government relied on when they argued the case. They know they're breaking the law. They know that they should be um, processing folks upon arrival. That is what the law requires, but they don't have to anymore. The courts can't force them to. So, this is the new world that we're in right now, which is dangerous with the Biden administration, but would be catastrophic if we have another Trump administration.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and the lawsuit uh, that your new lawsuit, what, uh, when can we expect to hear anything about that?
0: Um, we filed it this past year. We already had a hearing on the injunction, which like I mentioned was denied. Um, so these cases take years. Uh, the first case we filed initially in 2017 and it's still winding its way through appeals. Right. So, yeah I mean, you'll hear about it, but it's
1: a um, long time coming, litigation, right? yeah. yeah,
0: litigation takes forever. Um, it's very important, but it takes forever. You have to have a lot of patience for it. But I mean, i I think that ultimately a court will rule in our favor um with respect to the fact that the government is required to process asylum at ports of entry or pro- sorry, process asylum seekers at ports of entry. Um, but I do not have any faith that we will get a court to force the agency to follow the law.
1: And you were mentioning, you had mentioned that you had another big point you wanted to make about 2023.
0: Yeah. So the other really disturbing development has been the proliferation of open air detention sites along the border. So we started seeing this actually in late 2022, at least on the California border. I think that um, Del Rio is an example of an open air detention site. And there had been a few other um, scattered examples in Texas previously, but in may of 2023, it was a few days before the end of title 42 um, here in California, we saw border patrol holding thousands. I mean, hundreds at a time, but ultimately thousands of asylum seekers and other migrants in open air prisons without providing food, water, shelter, medical care, adequate sanitary facilities. And in May, they were holding people for up to 10 days at a time. And it was horrific to see. There were uh, infants, you know, elderly people, disabled people, medically vulnerable individuals. Um, we, at that point, were providing aid from the South Side Uh, There was another coalition of groups providing aid from the north side of the border and really just pushing, you know, baby formula and diapers and food through the border fence, trying to get people, you know, trying to prevent people from starving or, you know, dying from dehydration. It was really horrific.
1: What so what is what is like what is the what do these open air detention things look like? Are they you can you can actually go to the to the border wall and past things like are they right up against the 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 border fence itself or what do they so, look physically look like
0: yeah so there's seven in san diego county alone so there are four right on the border of tijuana um only one is accessible from the north side of the border the one the four that are in tijuana san diego so there's two border, well, some places there's three, but there's two primary border walls here. There's one that's right up against the border in Tijuana, and then there's one maybe a few hundred feet into the United States. And so if you cross the first border wall, you're stuck between the two walls. Mm-hmm. And that's where they would keep people. Um, the uh, one that's more, yeah. yeah, the one that's more accessible from the north side Um it's you know you can drive right up to it and see people they they look like they're in a giant cage essentially um, they're sleeping in the dirt um, you know we would pass through tarps and tents and things for people to set up but you know there's one porta potty for hundreds of people it's really grim it's really really grim especially when it rains it's it's horrific it's just a muddy pit basically with people sitting there for days with no food or water unless we're giving it to them. Um, the other three camps that are in San Isidro, San Diego, um, two, another two are accessible from the south side of the border when the security situation allows. And the other one you can only reach in a border patrol vehicle if you were allowed access between the two walls. And so um, one's actually kind of in the riverbed, in the Tijuana Riverbed, which is just essentially straight sewage flowing to the ocean. So there's public health Mm -hmm. concerns in addition to the fact that people are mostly defecating outside near the camps um, because there's not enough porta potties and so it's um yeah it's a open air prison filled with you know people's uh excrement with no food no trash cans maybe one porta potty i mean it's it's horrifying Um, and so those that's Sorry, yeah, that's four of them. And then there's another three in the high desert, about one hour east of San Diego County. And those are not between border walls. It's, you know, bordered to the south by the border wall and then bordered to the north by desert and mountains that are basically impenetrable. And, you know, a vast surveillance apparatus that would keep anyone from getting too far.
1: Yeah. So how does uh how does the um how is how are they enforced as border patrol? Like I what I get is border patrol doesn't provide anything, but are they there enforcing the like in the in the cage where where the people are between the two border walls is border patrol on the other side making sure nobody crosses past the second one or or is it just based like how does that how does the enforcement work?
0: So these are people who want to turn themselves into border patrol and I think this is right. really connected to the first issue I mentioned. So when you do not have access to asylum at a port of entry, you are forced to cross between ports of entry to access the asylum system. By and large, the people who are going into open air detention sites are trying to be processed. They're trying to turn themselves in. They want to seek asylum. So it's not a question of people trying to leave, um, it's a question of the speed at which they are processed. And that's really where the debate comes in because people are crossing the primary wall you know, into these camps or sometimes they're brought in by Border Patrol. Border Patrol tells them, you have to wait here. Um, you will only be processed from this camp. If you try to leave this camp, you will be deported. Um, people who do try to leave are brought back. Right, so we've seen that happen in the high desert. It's really almost impossible to leave if you're in the San Ysidro camps. But in Hakumba, ostensibly, you could walk out, but they have autonomous surveillance towers in each camp um, as well as you know, numerous scattered throughout the landscape surrounding like right, the camps. Right, right
1: there in the camp, is there one of the autonomous uh, surveillance towers right there?
0: People are sleeping underneath it because they don't yeah. have shelter. I mean, it's literally right in the middle of the camp. Right. So... Um, and those have a range of a few miles. So anybody trying to walk out would be detected. And I believe the way the ones that are there work is that they notify Border Patrol on their cell phone or laptop. It'll ping them. They will have visuals on who's trying to walk out. But there are also Border Patrols physically there as well. You know, sometimes there'll be, uh, most of the time, a Border Patrol agent parked in the camp watching people. There's also California National Guard. Um Yeah. So, I mean, and people, like I said, they're not generally trying to leave. The only time they'll try to leave is if they've been there for a few days without food or water and they try to walk out to get to some supplies, but otherwise they are not to be processed. mm
1: -hmm. They're not provided with food or water then as they wait. And then how long does it generally take? It takes like 10 days or seven days or how long does it usually take them to get processed?
0: In May, people were there seven to 10 days at a time. Um, And then those camps lasted for a few weeks and then were shut down. Um, And then they started again in early September of 2023. And I think the average people are staying is between two and four days. Um, Sometimes, especially when there's a holiday and there's less Border Patrol agents, it can be up to six days. Um, But I would say average is two to four, sometimes zero days, just depending on the flow of individuals coming into the camps. Um, but in either case, sometimes Border Patrol will give one bottle of water when they come in and a small packet of crackers. Um, but I've heard even from DHS leadership that they expect people to, quote, skip a few meals. Mm-hmm. And so there really isn't an, you know, any kind of attempt to provide um, food, water, or medical care. And Border Patrol and DHS more broadly maintains that these people are not actually detained. And so therefore, they do not have the responsibility to care for them. Um, What we see is that they are detained, um, especially when they're between the two border walls and they can't physically leave. But even in Hakumba, where I mentioned um, the surveillance towers, the physical presence of Border Patrol, the fact that they bring people back to the camps if they try to leave, the fact that people are told they'll be deported if they leave. The fact that they're told they will only be processed from those camps—that is functionally detention—and you know we argue that DHS does have a responsibility to provide the basics that migrants need to survive in those situations.
1: Yeah, um, and and I would assume, like as we speak right now, there are people in these situations, right? Like yes, in, in the cold of winter. Now we're in the cold of winter and it's pretty cold. There's lots of storms and it's rainy in places and below freezing yeah. in Arizona right now. And I assume that there's still lots of people out there.
0: Yeah. And that's actually, you know, that you mentioned Arizona, we saw over the past few weeks, the same situation happening there where individuals would cross the border, um, attempt to, or they would turn themselves into border patrol in many cases, they're given a bracelet by Border Patrol with the date and time of arrival, told not to leave. In the case of Arizona, they, uh, Border Patrol actually takes individual shoelaces, um, They consult, make them consolidate their belongings into one small backpack that they would be allowed to bring into an indoor facility, and then are told to wait. Um, and so I think there were a few thousand people near Lukeville a couple of weeks ago. And again, not provided with food, water, or medical care. And so again, it's volunteers, mutual aid groups and nonprofits mm-hmm. that end up providing those supplies.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, is there, I'm going to turn to think contemplate 2024 and what we have before us, but before that I wanted to see, is there anything else you wanted to mention about last year before we moved on?
0: Yeah, I think, Just it's really important to look at how the reality on the border is being framed. Um, And so I think this has been a huge shift, especially from the Trump administration. But I would say over the past year in the media, this um, narrative of border chaos and overwhelm, um, border patrol saying, you know, even they're saying it's Biden's open borders and they can't control the border and, you know, all of that. When you look at the actual numbers, we actually had less people crossing the border in 2023 than we did in 2022, or or fewer encounters, I would say. Um, And when you look at Border Patrol, um, you know the amount of money they have, the number of agents that they have. When you when you divide the number of encounters by the number of Border Patrol agents, um, it averages out to far less than one apprehension per day per agent. Mm -hmm. And so this narrative of overwhelm, I think, is just not challenged by the media by and large. And it's very dangerous. Um, And it really feeds into this political narrative um, that supports further restrictions on asylum, which we've seen discussed in Congress and and even by the White House. So I think that is a really important um, dynamic to consider, especially as we head into an election year.
1: Yeah, so you, I would imagine that you would presume that this sort of narrative will very much continue into 2024, um, especially as we proceed towards the November elect- presidential elections. Um, yeah, what, like, what do you, what do you anticipate? Um, like, how do you anticipate this? Uh, the, what we're, What do you think we're going to see in this next year?
0: So I think... Physically on the border, we will see more open air detention sites. Um, I do think, based on a few recent incidents, that it's um, a situation that's intentionally created by Border Patrol in particular to feed this narrative of overwhelm and open borders and to support further restrictions on asylum. If you look at the Border Patrol Union, it is a partisan political organization that is uh, very pro Trump. And so, thinking about their actions through that lens is really useful because you can see how a lot of their narrative supports Trump's policies as a presidential candidate. But I think it's also important to look at the broader geopolitical context when we think about border policy and particularly the conflicts in Russia, Ukraine, and Israel, Palestine. We are already seeing, you know, Border Patrol coming out with you know, I'm making air quotes right now, intelligence memos about Hamas operatives Mm -hmm. crossing the border, which there's been no evidence of. Um, I've seen a former Spox for the Ukrainian military who's an American citizen, now in the Darien Gap talking about how Russian intelligence is, you know, basically promoting uncontrolled migration to the United States and how it's a foreign intelligence operation and Just a lot of this sort of um, really unsubstantiated claims, I would say. I have not seen any evidence of these things, but we've seen this before. We saw this with 9-11 and, you know, really tying the war on terrorism to increased militarization at the border. And, you know, with the current conflicts, I think we're seeing that again. And like we saw after 9-11, it was a lot of unsubstantiated fear mongering that only served to um, exponentially increase the reach of Border Patrol, the size of Border Patrol, the money that they're getting, um, and really had horrific effects on the border communities. Um, not only just, I mean, I think that you experienced the border before 9-11 as well. It's it's like night and day, right? It really divided communities that had been one community um, up until that point. And so I think we're going to see That even more, right? All of this security theater is going to serve to further divide border communities and also affect, um, you know, have a greater environmental impact, um, you know, with building new walls, with installing lights in wildlife corridors, you know, all of that surveillance equipment that really affects people who live along the border um, using, you know, the Russia conflict or Hamas or all of these. Boogeymen to really justify that increased surveillance and increased spending uh, on the border.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because that supplemental bill, right, had for military spending and uh, assistance to Israel and Ukraine, um, also had the $15 billion for the border, right, in there, right. as if it were all the kind of the same thing. You know, why what else would it be in all in the same bill, right? Um. So it's that's a really interesting point. And then, like thinking about 2023 budget, if you take the CBP ice budget, it was 29.8 billion, 29.8 billion dollars, I believe. Um, already right. So it was already like this one of the highest budgets we've ever seen before. And now we're coming into 2024, which probably I can't remember what it is, but it's similar. The, just the 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 baseline budget for CBP and ICE, and then you have this additional supplemental funding that hasn't passed yet, but may pass coming in the next little bit. And um, and in an election year, it just seems I don't know. It just seems like all this you're making like I'm going up your point. You know the kind of nine eleven point, and of course the nine. You know the is Israel made like like. The, the first statement or in the statement coming from the United States was that uh October 7th when the Hamas attacks happened in in Israel um that's like that's like Israel's 9 11 right and and, right. and the kind of alarm like what what does that actually mean so it, it's like I'm just trying to like process all the things that you're saying and putting together. uh you know, an election year. You have an election year. You have all these. You know, the stuff that you're talking about from 2023, which seems the narratives are going to carry over. You have um the, I um the sort of narrative, the the board the overwhelm the chaos narrative that you're talking about. Plus, you have these budgets that perhaps are going to be the biggest ones ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah so-
0: and there's there's just like such a lack of accountability with those billions of dollars too. It's almost akin to what we see at the Pentagon. Um, and just to give one example, at the end of Title 42, uh, I think there was an additional $1.4 billion, 4 billion appropriation because, uh, you know, I think you remember everybody anticipating that there would be this huge surge of migrants coming at the end of Title 42, which of course didn't happen. And so my question is what happened to the money? Because if you look at the plans that came out of DHS itself about how they were going to spend that money, um, if they had actually spent it in the way that they said they were going to, we wouldn't have open air detention sites. They would have been more than ready for the increase that we're seeing today, especially given the number of agents they have on staff. And so um, we saw this too or under the Trump administration when additional funding was allocated for humanitarian support, diapers and formula and things to help the families crossing the border. We saw that border patrol spent that money on ATVs instead, right? And other surveillance toys that they deployed on the border. And so what's really dangerous here is this kind of myth of border security and having to secure the border and this narrative that it's all out of control and that we can fix it by throwing money at it. Well, where's this money going? If we have babies sitting out in the desert for up to a week at a time without any food or water. We had a child die in one of, like at the perimeter of one of these camps because there was no medical care. So wh- where, where's that money going and are we really going to be more secure by, you know, allocating another few billion dollars to the problem?
1: Yeah, that's um, really really pertinent questions that i that actually are need to be at the forefront of this discussion what i fear is that as we go into election year if 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 the kind of national discourse around the border is really distorted as is it just gets triply distorted right or what do you think we're going to we're going to see come? like what i what i often, what i finally often hear is just stuff that doesn't even make any sense for people who are actually on the ground about what are the real issues. Um, My fear is that there's going to be more of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the general narrative I hear on the border is so divorced from reality. And it's not just coming from the right. It's coming from both sides of the aisle. And what surprises me when I interact with elected officials, especially in Washington, is how little they know about the realities of the border. When elected officials do visit the border, they generally are hosted by Border Patrol, who, again, has a political agenda. They have a political agenda and they have a fiscal agenda. They want more money. They want more resources and they want more power. And one way to get all of those things is by presenting a chaos narrative. And they do it often. They do it with elected officials and in the media. And it's very rarely questioned. Um, you know, I think I see a lot of times elected officials, you know, even coming to San Diego or Tijuana and never interacting with migrants, never interacting with nonprofit groups or you know civil society groups or faith-based faith groups that have been doing this work for decades. And so they're really getting, um, you know, a very one-sided distorted narrative. But what's even more frightening is the way that the public has turned on asylum seekers. And I often will say that the border has been worse under Biden than it ever was under Trump because we've seen a continuation of many of the same policies, but without the public outrage. You know, we've just, as an example, over the past few months have documented over a thousand family separations, but I don't see anyone protesting about it in the streets. Right. Um, Even with title 42, it was this horrific, You know, civil rights violation when Trump did it, but then when Biden did it, it was justified. And so, with that kind of apathy that we're seeing from the public, um, the policies are getting more restrictive and punitive, where we've seen the highest number of deaths we've ever seen at the border. And what's really frightening to me is that um, migrants have been so dehumanized in the media, you know, they're seen as invaders or. Um, people who are coming to steal jobs or whatever, you know, that narrative is. But I think even people who were outraged at family separation, if you ask them today what they believe, they will say, well, the border needs to be more secure without really thinking about what that means and who's affected by it. And so I'm really frightened um, because, you know, just using the open air camps as an example, like you can't leave people in the desert to die, can you? You know, is this acceptable to the United States public that we leave children and, you know, men, women, and children in the desert to die with no food or water or medical care? And that's okay because they cross the border and that somehow means that they deserve to die. Like that's, we've come so far from the outrage over family separation to now, I think, people being largely unaware that this is even happening. And so... If the dominant narrative is the chaos invader narrative, this type of really horrific human rights violation will just proliferate. And, you know, the public is not going to say anything about it or do anything about it until it's really too late.
1: Yeah. So what can we do about that? What do you think we can do about that?
0: Yeah, I feel so many, I feel a lot (laughs) like I'm just screaming into the wind, like, You know, a lot of my job is um, talking to media and there's some outlets that do really great coverage, but even those that um, I would say were more pro-migrant, pro-asylum during the Trump administration have really taken up these right-wing narratives. And it's very rare that I will be approached by a media outlet that doesn't lead with the chaos narrative. I think they're just looking for clicks, right? Looking for engagement. And that's what seems to lead engagement. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I think that um, I would hope that more journalists start to question this overwhelm narrative and really look at the numbers, um, look at where the money is going, look at, um, again, like I mentioned earlier, the number of encounters versus the number of agents. And even questioning this narrative of you know, this is the most people we've seen cross the border ever. That's not true. Um, DHS actually changed the way that they measure encounters versus apprehensions a few years ago. It used to be how many people were apprehended and now it's encounters. And so you could have a single person crossing eight times and that's eight encounters, whereas before mm. that would have been counted once. So just even really questioning the statistics, looking at the statistics, how, is, how are these things being measured? right like uh, look just looking beyond the you know surface level statements i hope that we would see more of that but i'm honestly not very hopeful about it um i think that i fear that things will get worse um and i see that even in san diego which you know it's been a conservative town in the past but we do have democratic leadership now and they have not given a dime of county in california state money nothing to help in the open air detention sites they haven't pushed back on dhs at all and that's you know supposedly the party that's pro-immigrant so if they don't care then who will
1: yeah do you have any like like for our listeners right now like something that they like might be helpful for them to do um in response to this especially like considering this year, um. Like Yeah, more. I
0: think, yeah, for sure, just demanding accountability. I mean, these are billions of taxpayer dollars that are going to essentially torturing refugees in the deserts here um, and killing people. I mean, this, again, I, I mentioned this earlier, this is the deadliest year that we've seen on the border, on the U.S.-Mexico border. It's the deadliest land border crossing in the world. You know, I I would hope that the American public would not accept that as as a fact and just move on you know i i think if people do call their representatives especially if they have congressional representatives who are on any of the dhs oversight committees and really demand you know why why is border patrol overwhelmed if they have billions of dollars you know why do are we seeing open-air prisons on the border if fema is part of dhs like they don't have a tent that they could put up you know it's just asking these simple questions um know, I think would go a really long way. And I think also, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of elected officials in Washington are not aware of what's going on in the border. And so really, I think your listeners are probably a self-selecting bunch that does choose to educate themselves, but really sharing this information with others, um, you know, sharing information about the open air prisons with their elected officials and really demanding to know why an age, a multi billion dollar agency cannot give a bottle of water to a child who's trying to seek protection in the United States.
1: Well, thank you, thank you, Erica. I really appreciate um, you sharing this insight with us. Um, as we you know proceed and go into this next year, um, can you let people know more, like? where they can find you know find out more about you and al otro lado and um and maybe like are do you have any projects that you that people might be interested in um or could engage with this year
0: yeah so um well first just thank you so much for having this conversation uh i really admire your work so much and it's always such an honor to be invited um and if people want to know more about Alotrolado, they can check out our, our website is alotrolado.org. Um, all of our social media, um, usually it's alotrolado underscore org on the major, you know, Twitter and um, TikTok and all of that. And if your listeners have friends or family who are migrants, we have a lot of information for migrants who are seeking protection in the United States in over a dozen languages, especially in our TikTok account. So I would really encourage people to check that out. And then we've been working as part of a collective to provide humanitarian aid um, to the open air detention sites. So folks can check out borderaidsandiego.org. That has a list of organizations that have been helping out and mutual aid groups who have really led the charge to provide um, shelter and water and food to folks who are trapped here and those who are being released into San Diego County. Um, so it has, you know, a lot of ways people can help and plug in um, on that website. And yeah, um, I think this year we've expanded our, our communications department. So we're hoping to put out a lot more um Original content on our social media sites, so it would ask, ask folks to look out for that, and there they can learn more about the reality of what's actually happening on the border, and not, uh, you know, not the media spin, not the chaos narrative, but really get to know uh, the people who are directly impacted.
1: Thank you, Erica. We we'll always uh, appreciate um, hearing from you, and again, happy New Year to you, and um, thanks, and just wish you all the all the best for this year. And, um, I'm sure we'll be in touch. In fact, just to let you know, I, we're hoping to like get, get over to, um, Southern California, Northern Mexico, Baja California, you know, that area, um, in the next few months. So, so I'll be in contact about that. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Great.
0: Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you here.
1: You've been listening to the border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.